Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NILA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff-side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the Board of Directors of NILA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. And welcome back to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by Neela Illinois. We are your hosts. I'm Max Barrick. And I'm Amit Bindra. Still know our names. Yeah, we got it that time. Thanks to everybody for coming back and listening. We're really, really excited again to have Jennifer Mondino, the current director of legal programs for the Times Up Legal Defense Fund, once again, agreeing to be really generous with their time and come back with the second interview. We encourage people to check out Jennifer's first episode, which was really informative and will give people a lot of information about how to be allies and supporters for survivors of sexual harassment and abuse. Prior to working for the fund, Jennifer worked for the Department of Justice and played a leading role in the DOJ's investigation of the Baltimore Police Department and litigation against notorious ex-sheriff of Maricopa County, Joseph Arpaio, and numerous other sexual assault investigations. Jennifer also was instrumental in being one of the individuals helping draft DOJ guidance in 2015 in preventing gender bias in law enforcement responses to sexual assault and domestic violence. Jennifer, did I get all of that right? You did get all of that right. Jennifer, welcome back. So this time we want to talk about you. Last time you came on and and were kind enough to describe the Times Up Legal Defense Fund and the different organizations that that is affiliated with. And it's it's really inspiring creation story. But today we want to hear your story and how you got here. So you initially started at at Mayor Brown. It's a very prestigious firm and an international law firm. And then you shifted gears to focus on sexual assault and violence. How did you end up doing all of that? Yeah, I have done a lot of things. So now uh, I'm going to date myself. I, I have been an attorney now, practicing attorney for about 20 years. And I did start out at Mayor Brown, but oh goodness, Mayor Brown folks going to listen. I, I was there for a very short time. And most of my career, I have I have been working on, on civil rights and, and mostly women's rights issues. I, I would say the, the focus has been on immigrant women and, and survivors of sexual violence. So Mayor Brown, that was the first job I had at the law school. And, you know, I said it was about 20 years ago. This was back in the sort of heyday of law jobs, right? So I had a big class, like they were pouring lots of money into us. They would take us all these fancy meals and pay for all this training, all of this stuff. And one of the things that they very generously let us do at that time is you could propose a pro bono project that you wanted to work on and they would consider it and and let you do it. And they had somebody come speak to us who had a fellowship that was being partly funded by Mayor Brown. And she was doing, at, at the time it was sort of a novel term, like she was doing holistic legal services for domestic violence victims at a, at a New York City organization that, that works with domestic violence victims. And she came and spoke to us and I was besotted basically, you know, I was like, I love you and everything that you are doing. And I want to do that maybe, you know? So I, I did this proposal to Mayor Brown at the time and asked them if I could spend time working with her as a pro bono project. And it was, it was a number of hours that at the time seemed like a big number of hours. I, I was like, hours a week or something, which was a big ask for like a first year at a, at a law firm at that time. And to their credit, they let me do it. And, and I 
thought it was fantastic, right? And and through that, I, I heard about an opening at a, a partner organization of where she was working, Safe Horizon. It's a it's a big crime victim organization in New York City, and they have a part of the organization that that works with domestic violence and and trafficking victims. And they had an opening for an attorney. So this woman that I was working with, I asked her if you know what she thought of that, if if she could help me, you know, interview for that job, or or put in a good word for me. At the time, like maybe even now. There was a big divide between people working at big law firms in New York City and working in like direct legal services. So she was quite taken aback, I think, that I wanted to do that, but but said okay and did put in a good word for me. And I ended up getting that job and leaving Mayor Brown after just about a year of being there. I was the first one in this class to leave. And and they had treated they I will still say this, they treated me very well. Like, you know, they had let me do this wonderful pro bono work and given me good assignments and, you know. <laughs> I was being paid a lot. All of the things. I think they were quite taken aback that that I left when I did. And it was it was like an 80% pay cut. Yeah, I will share with you all. This is the personal, this is the personal podcast episode. Like I am firstborn in a in an immigrant family, you know. No one does that in my family, you know. Like my they were like, what are you doing? 80%. Like had, 80%, 80%. I'm sorry 80%, to interrupt you, but 80%? That is crazy. 80%. And that's only first year or so. I mean, that's. Yeah, it was, it was an 80% pay cut. Though, though to yeah. be fair, we've heard, we had a recruiter come on recently, a good friend of ours, Carolyn Everman, who described for us what the big law going rate for first year associates is. That's a lot of money to give up. Yeah. It was a lot of money to give up. And, and you know, like I had all these all these relatives in South America were like concerned. They thought that, you know, like the gringa had basically like absolutely yeah. lost her mind. You know, like, why would you do that? Yes. I love yeah. the origin story though. Do you remember right. the name of the, the person who inspired you? That's, but yeah, yeah should I give her a shout out? Camille Yeah, Carey. give her a shout out. Yeah, do it. Camille Carey, do. she was the one who inspired me. I think that she's a clinical professor somewhere these days. I'm sure she's still doing really wonderful things. Yeah, she absolutely inspired me. And I, and I do not regret any of it. That I feel like that set me, you know, back on on the path that that I had sort of intended to be on when I came to law school. I think I had gotten a bit derailed. That was what um, I was gonna ask you. So prior to that moment, did you is this what you wanted to do, you thought? And then you just got kind of sidetracked because everyone does in law school, or was that yeah. kind of like okay? I, I yeah, absolutely. Like I I, you know, I, I went to law school thinking I was going to be a human rights lawyer, a civil rights lawyer, like a public interest lawyer. And that was most of what I, you know, studied and did my internships in and everything when I was when I was there. But there was I imagine there still is, like there was there was a very big push to at least participate in the hiring, you know, like the the recruiting that they did on on campus, I guess you would say for for the law firms, right? Like I I literally had somebody working in like the recruiting office call me. At the time we were talking about how like remote makes us seem like huge now. But at the time like I I had a I had an internship in the Bay Area after my 1L summer working at a legal aid office there. It was fantastic. But to me, it felt like I had crossed the country, right? I had gone right. to the opposite coast. I had my like like fellowship to, to work at this legal aid office that summer. And I was already in the middle of the summer. And I had this person from the recruiting office call me in. And I felt like sort of... Uh, sort of chew me out and say like, why have you not signed up for the on-campus early interview week? Like it is happening and like you are supposed to participate, you know? And I was like, but I, I don't, I don't wish to do that. And she was like, you, you really <laughs> should do that. And so I did. And, you know, and 
and of course, you know, not to criticize it, but my my family was like, yes, of course you should do that. It's like you are the first born in this like you know good family. Like, go apply for the jobs. Like, do what the recruiting lady told you. You know, so I did and got like a summer job at Mayor Brown and you know, and then an offer and all those things felt very difficult to to say no to at the time. Like I didn't I didn't yet have like you know, do any of you relate to this experience? Like third year, like I had applied to, ah, I had applied to a few, like they seemed to me sort of glamorous, like fellowships that seemed really wonderful to me. It's like wonderful, like human rights organizations, not unlike the organization that I now work with. So it all turned out okay. But at the time, you know, I was like, I want that wonderful fellowship. And I had not gotten them by December of third year of law school. I didn't have a job. And, and Mayor Brown was saying, here is your job at which we will pay you lots of money and pay for your like, you know, bar class and, and the whole thing. Um, I yeah. said, yes, in the end, I said, yes, you know, and, and spent this year there, which was fine, but I left after a short time and, and kind of course corrected and, and went and spent a couple of years working in direct services, which I think I, I, I always have, maybe you all do too, like, you know, younger lawyers or, you know, folks starting out who say like, oh, you know, I, I love the kinds of things that you did. Like, what should I do? Or, or like, what is better? Like, should I work in direct legal services or should I work in impact litigation? What should I do? And I don't know what the answer is about what is better, but I think that it was invaluable to have done like the direct legal services at some point, right? Later on, I went on to do you know, impact litigation, these pattern or practice investigations, or, you know, now what I'm doing is also very like broad strokes. Like, you know, you see what's happening all across the country, but to have spent time, you know, in the trenches, like people say, like really going to court every day and like really seeing the day-to-day -day lives of the folks who you're advocating for later on sort of a macro level, I think is, it changes you. And it, it's, it's really good to I mean, it's good experience as a lawyer, like to learn to litigate in that way, but it, but it humanizes you to the, to the issues that you're working on too. It's, I, I, I like that story for a lot of reasons. One, because it touches on a lot of themes that we've covered in past episodes. One of my favorite guests anyway, I love all our guests, if any of them are listening, but, <laughs> but a really awesome plaintiff's lawyer that has been a credit to our bar is a guy named Jim Zoris. And he described a similar part to his story. He's a firm that's been really cutting edge and locally around here in Illinois doing a lot of aggressive plaintiff side and consumer side litigation on behalf of individuals who really need the help. And he described a story where he was at the top of his law school class. The guy lived in the library, like never breathed or slept or anything. And, you know, there was a lot of screw turning from career services at his law school to go do on what we, you know, when, it, when I was in law school, anyway, they called it OCI on campus interview, go be a big, mm -hmm. go, go to big law. You know, that's where you belong. Your grades are good. You're smart. Go to big law. And he, you know, you figured it out real quick. It wasn't for you. It's not where your heart was at. And he, I, he told him to pound sand. He's like, I'm not doing it. It's not what I want to do. And I don't know. It's, I, I think our profession would be better served with more people like you and Jim, you know, following following our hearts right and saying you know what maybe maybe individuals need good lawyers too and not just uh, not just big corporations yeah it takes a it takes some appetite for uncertainty which is not easy at that stage in life though right as well as all kinds of other things right like there's the financial pull like people need to be able to figure oh, yeah. out how to how to make the public interest jobs work all of that but at, but at the time it was 80 a lot of cut, yeah. 80 percent pay cut you know yeah i cannot get i cannot get around that number that is wild but I, the other thing I think of your story I really like is the perspective aspect yeah. of 
like you said, you're in the trenches, you know, the day-to-day of what's going on. So now when you're in your current role, you have a better sense of what kind of needs to be done, what people are dealing with, et cetera. It really makes you, I'm assuming, and you, you tell us way better at your job because you have that perspective, you have that knowledge. I hope so. I think so. I mean, no, I mean, there, you know, I think, you know, like I was telling you on this other episode about, you know, advising folks who are in the legal network or who are applying to us for funding and, and talking to them about like trauma informed legal advocacy. And so, you know, I, I am talking to people sometimes who are having tough times with it, right? Like sometimes it can be, it can be difficult. Like you have your client who is dealing with all kinds of things and they get really angry at you, you know, or, or just are telling you things that are so, so very difficult to hear things like that. And, and there are folks that I represented early in my career that I still think of often. And, and when I hear those people's stories, I'm remembering them. And I, and I really get what these folks are saying in this visceral way because I got to know those clients of mine, you know? Yeah. And, and I think if that hadn't been the case, it, it might be very much more abstract. You can still be a terrific lawyer, but it can get a bit more abstract and academic, you know? And, you know, these cases are there. It's a very intimate kind of violence. Like they're, they're about heart. Like it's getting to people in the very private sphere of their lives. So having kind of been in that space, with them in a more intimate way, I think does change the way you approach it as a lawyer. So then how did you go from Safe Horizons to the Department of Justice? Mm-hmm. Well, there were there were a few jobs in there. <laughs> like that podcast episode like, I don't know long enough for all of that. I mean, I, I worked at a few different places. Um, but I, I worked at Safe Horizon for a few years doing like direct legal services and I did love it. But after some time I wanted to I started to crave doing, I guess, impact work to, you know, to, to describe it in one way. This will sound negative, but I think, you know, you start to see, you start to see patterns in, in the lives of the folks that you are working with and it's it's frustrating, you know? And so I thought about wanting to do work where I was changing some of those things another way and, and also doing things were maybe a little more intellectually, challenging, like coming up with a creative legal claim and things like that. Like I, I am wonky about this stuff. I, I like it, like coming up with the, the creative claims. And so I actually left Safe Horizon first to go to the New York Attorney General's office in, in their civil rights office, which is very, very similar in a way to, to the civil rights division of the Justice Department, just on this level. So that was that was my first move into going from direct legal services to impact litigation. And then I had a, a series of other other jobs that were doing impact litigation work. I, I worked at a reproductive rights organization and then I went to to the Justice Department. Well, and then at the DOJ, we mentioned Max mentioned this in the introduction, you worked on some pretty high profile matters. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the cases you worked on at the DOJ? Yeah. So I was in the special litigation section at the at the Civil Rights Division. The Civil Rights Division has, you know, all of these different sections that have different focuses and I am often finding myself telling people that the special litigation section is the one that has the least descriptive name. Like you can't tell what it's all about from the name. Like what does that even mean? And it does have a a number of different things that they do, but the cases that I was most working on were the ones that had to do with patterns and practices of discrimination by law enforcement agencies. And at the time that I was there, most of the time that I was there was 
you know, under the Obama administration, they were doing some really groundbreaking enforcement of civil rights claims against law enforcement agencies. And, and I was lucky enough to be involved in in a few really high profile ones. You all you all mentioned some of them at the beginning. I I, I was on investigations involving the Baltimore Police Department. I played a role in our investigations to the Chicago Police Department, New Orleans. We had a case, long time case against Sheriff Joe Arpaio in Arizona. And and I was um, one of the leads of, of work that we did in Missoula, Montana, which was really groundbreaking at the time because it was it was the first time that the Justice Department had done an investigation that was focusing on gender discrimination by a law enforcement agency. So the idea was that they were having a pattern of discrimination based on gender by not responding in the way they should to crimes of sexual violence, basically. So it was an investigation that was together with the education section and the Department of Education was also involved. And it was looking at the University of Montana and Missoula and also the city police department and also the prosecutor's office, all of those things together. And, and the university had and, and still has its own campus police department. So it was it was looking at it as as a whole system, right? Like the, like a community, that community and other communities have a whole a whole network of offices that are involved in in responding to a report of sexual violence, right? And so sometimes it was sort of the case there. It happens in other places. People, an organization might be faulted and they will want to pass the buck, right? Let's just like simplistically, maybe people might get upset with this, but the police department might say like, oh, like, you know, we would like to do this, but we can't do it because the prosecutors will never want to take the case, right? And the prosecutors might say, oh, we would like to do it, but the police, they didn't really set up the case for us, right? Or, you know, the jury will never listen to it. Like a jury won't buy it. And maybe the campus police department is going to say, like, oh, like this is not our responsibility. It's the city police department that's supposed to be doing it. Everybody has, you know, their way of explaining it. So one of the beauties of this investigation, I think, was saying we're talking about it all as a system. Like each of these different parts of it has its responsibilities, which they are not meeting, but also they have responsibilities to work together, right? So that one I was... I was fortunate enough to get to work on it throughout its whole life cycle, if that makes sense, which is, is sort of unusual that DOJ, because some of these investigations and, and litigation, like other kinds of litigation, can last a long time, right? Like years and years, maybe maybe decades even. But this one was was more compact in time. And I was there involved in it from from the beginning when we were, you know, just actually starting to hear from advocates and survivors on the ground asking us to do something about it and developing the investigation, just starting it to, you know, ending up with our investigative findings and then coming out with agreements of what they were supposed to do and, and enforcing the agreements. Those are all like different stages of things that, that the civil rights division might do. And, and I was involved in all of them. So it was was an important part of what I what I did there, and and I feel really proud of it because I feel like we really did make some positive changes. But it you know, oftentimes like people will say, but I I think it is a real thing that you know when the when the Justice Department gets involved in in doing a case like that, they're doing it because they think 
it's an important case, but also they're trying to pick cases that are going precedent, right? Like other law enforcement agencies, other universities, other institutions are going to look at that and say, like, oh, this is the way that we are supposed to do things. Maybe because they don't want to get in trouble themselves or maybe because they want to do the right thing, whatever. Like they're, it's going to it's going to set a model. And I think that really did happen with, with the work that happened in Montana. And, and I've ended up, you know, doing quite a bit of training about it. There was, you know, written guidance that the Justice Department ended up putting out that was using principles that came out of that and, and some of the other investigations that I mentioned. Even in my in my work now at the at the National Women's Law Center, I've, you know, been able to see some some cases that, that we have supported and gotten involved in where they have ended up using that guidance in the court case. So it's it's can be really neat to to see this is part of what happens when you when you also just get older as a lawyer. Like you can see some of the lasting effects of work that you were involved in earlier in your career. And it's it's you know it's really exciting. That's that's I mean that's really beautiful in that way. I mean that you're able to make that kind of change in it. I mean it there's a lot there to unpack, right? But one of the other thing it reminds me of when you were describing how these departments will all just pass the buck and instead of university, I, I think uh, Amit and I have done a few episodes recently on sports related issues. Most of them tend to circle around hostile work environment, whether based on race or sex type situations or or in the case of the Gruden case, both, right? But it, it reminds me a lot of these stories you hear about really systemic problems at some of these big state universities with sports teams, right? Where women will be um, assaulted by an athlete, and they'll go to the campus police. It, it, it speaks to why this work to me is really important because it's why people don't come forward, right? Something terrible is done to a woman and it, some sort of sexual violence. She goes to campus police and has the courage to, to come forward against a powerful person on campus and report it. And I remember, I think it was the Michigan State or Baylor. I don't remember which one it was, but one of them where it was like, they were basically in league with the coach telling them like, hey, this girl came forward and said this or discouraging her from really making it an issue or deliberately or through incompetence mishandling these investigations and the prosecutors didn't want to launch the athletes. So they weren't really going to turn the screws. And we know that prosecutors tend not to want to mess with police generally. So they're not inclined to start pressing that issue as a general matter. So I, I just think, I like the way you told that story because it speaks to why these DOJ investigations and consent decrees they can get are so important because there's not a lot of incentives at the local level, right, to to change these systems as they exist. Oh, yeah, absolutely. All of those things were very much in play in in Missoula, Montana at that time. And it's not unique to Missoula, Montana, though. You know, like it's you know, it's a big state school. They have they have an important football team. And, you know, some of the. Some of the sexual assaults that we were we were looking at at the time with football players, and you know, there are all these kind of reasons that the university doesn't have an incentive to to do something about that. Like, is part of their recruiting? It's part of their funding. Like, it's not such a big community. People that graduated from the school or were on the football team have positions of power in the town. So it it's really hard to make change there. I I think that it can it can almost help people on the ground sometimes to have, you know, the justice department or somebody that's sort of an outsider come in and then you have somebody to pressure, but also sort of to blame. And because it, it's so hard to be the force speaking out when it is this, you know, this sort of insular community with this really important and dominant culture. Reminds me of the Penn state case a little bit with Jerry Sandusky and Joe Paterno too, is the other one that comes to mind with yep. that with, um, 
you just have this coach who's been there for decades upon decades who just, you know, does not address the situation properly or really show the right kind of care for it and and the harm that that causes. To, to pivot just a little bit, I want to ask about one of the other investigations you did, because I, I, maybe I'm just a politics nerd or, or what it was, but Joe Arpaio had been on the radar of a lot of people for doing a lot of horrific things to a lot of people for a long time and did not seem to care one iota that he was under investigation. And unfortunately, the last president pardoned him for some for some awful things he got into trouble for. Can you can you talk a little bit about that litigation and and investigation? Are there any things you can share about that? Well, where do you even with that? It was it was a it was a long range thing, and you know what an incredible example of a place where it, it can be helpful to have you know the power of the federal government come in because Joe Arpaio was a force for so long. Just he was sheriff in Maricopa County, Arizona, right? Sheriff in Maricopa, sheriff of Maricopa County, Arizona, who had been elected and reelected and reelected over and over and over again, even then, you know, quite a lot of attention to, I would say, abuses that he was doing. People that supported him celebrated it a lot of times, right? Like part of, part of his whole persona was based on taking a tough stance. He, he portrayed it as taking a tough stance on immigrants, but it was, you know, promoting and, and hatred of immigrants, right? And 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 often in ways that were, you know, designed to get attention and be humiliating. Like part of part of the work that we were doing there had to do with bills that he running that there are, you know, there are prisons, but there are jails that were run by by the sheriff's office and had all these things to do to humiliate the the prisoners, so many of whom, maybe the majority of whom were, you know, Mexican immigrants, brown, brown folks, basically, you know, like they would put them in, like they had something. So like these unbelievable temperatures in the Arizona desert, and they had them in the heat of the desert, just on these sort of open canopies. They had them wear like pink underwear, gave them discussing food like all and and he would go and do like press conferences from there and and sort of show it off that he was like like the toughest sheriff in america and the one who was like taking a stand against immigrants and people left this and kept re-electing him and re-electing him right so the investigation you know it was complicated i could go into all the claims but like basically it was about of discrimination against immigrants. He was in all kinds of ways, in, in traffic stops, in the jails, in all kinds. Every aspect of this sheriff's office had aspects of discriminatory conduct. And, you know, oftentimes, like the Justice Department will go in and notice an investigation, they call it, right? Like, we are informing you, like, jurisdiction, law enforcement agency, whatever, that the Justice Department is investigating you for these things. And and sometimes that is enough to get the jurisdiction to pay attention and maybe start negotiating about making some changes, which is okay, right? Like this is this is a way of bringing about change. And, and it's a sensible way of doing it because you avoid, you know, the expense, the publicity, all of the things of a more contested proceeding. So the special litigation section, for example, most of the work that they do doesn't go to litigation because jurisdictions don't want to go there. 
right? Like they want to start entering into a dialogue with the Justice Department about how to remedy the things that the Justice Department is telling them they're going to do wrong. But folks I was telling you about in Montana and you know the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office were among the most intractable of all. Like they were just digging in their hills and and refusing to refusing to acknowledge or apologize for any of it. And so in both cases it ended up leading to really aggressive litigation, which is which is fairly unusual for the for the section. Because usually there's a consent decree of some kind that ultimately gets negotiated, right? Is like the department that's in trouble or that's being investigated for some problem, the DOJ, like you said, like you're, you're going to work it out and figure out what's a workable alternative. How can this be fixed? Who's going to be in charge of enforcing it? But uh, yeah, if memory serves, that guy was happy to keep getting fined and sued. And I think one of the other things I remember, if memory serves, one of the consequences to him being so focused on basically rounding up and beating up immigrants all the time was that, you know, to, to circle back to your current mission, am I remembering correctly, or maybe I'm pulling this out of, you know, where weren't there a bunch of uninvestigated sexual assault and rape allegations too? They were so busy doing all this other horrific stuff that they were just flat out, not dealing with sex crimes of sexual violence. Am I, I'm not, imagining- you're remembering correctly. You're not imagining that. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I don't know. Well, it's, it's, I mean, we could probably do several episodes on that one with whatever you're allowed to discuss publicly, but just to shift gears one last time, how did you then find yourself at the Time's Up Fund? So you go, you've done some really important work at the DOJ. You're part of these really critical investigations into various problematic practices. So how are you, how'd you get to where you are now? Yeah, am I remembering correctly you started, you left the DOJ around 2018? I left the DOJ around 2018. Yeah. So, you know, it it was around the time that there was a a change in, in administration. So there were changes going on and in the section I was in and civil rights division. So there were a lot of people that left my section at that time. And I think that's usually what, what people assume like, Oh, perhaps you left sort of in protest. Quite a few people did. Some people left and it just, the timing coincided. I would say for me, it was sort of, it was sort of a mix. Like it was not quite the same to be doing the work I was doing at the Justice Department at that time as it had been, right? Like the job that I had was what they call a career job. Like there are, there are people there who, you know, you have your job regardless of who the attorney general or the president or, or whatever is. And, and there are statutes that you enforce. And, and there are people that have stayed in that section throughout and, and done fantastic work. And I still am friends with and admire. So it's possible to keep doing that work. But, but there were a lot of pressures. And there were a lot of pressures in particular on the kind of work that I had been doing, right? Like there was not as much support or appetite for, for looking at law enforcement agencies, for example. And, and that, after we had been doing you know, such aggressive and exciting work for such a long stretch was really tough. So there's, there's that. At the same time, I, you know, I loved the work that I did at, at the Justice Department and, and was proud of it. And so, and, and really loved the people that I was working with and all of that. And it's a unique place to be. So I don't think that I would have considered leaving if it wasn't something that seemed really unique and new and exciting to me, which is just what was true with the Time's Up legal defense fund, right? Like I was telling you all in, in the previous episode about this this moment, right? Like where you have like this Me Too 
hashtag me too going viral and this national conversation and all this attention to it and and money coming in public support coming in and this fund getting created and it just seemed like such an exciting and unique opportunity to me to be doing something like that at that moment where you have you know you kind of have the wind behind your sails it's like sometimes there are these these moments that come where like you can kind of go with it and do a lot of change in in this shorter amount of time than you normally would have been because like the attention is on it. Maybe the money is on there is on the issue at that time. Um, and I thought that like the things that I had done in my background were all things that the fund could use, right? Like I, I spent a year uh, with the office on violence against women at the justice department. So I had done some thinking about grant making and I've done direct legal services and the impact litigation. I was like, I, I know about things that they will need to do this. And I think it will be really fun. And so it was sort of a, it was sort of a mix of those things, like a, a moment where things were not quite what they had been at DOJ and also this opportunity to be in on something really exciting at the beginning. And yeah, also, I think it's not as, as disconnected as it might seem, right? Like I, like I was, I was working on these investigations involving law enforcement, but in, in almost all of them, like you know, you get involved in all the parts, but the part that I was most focused on was the piece of it that had to do with gender discrimination. Like you were asking me, like, was there a piece of the Arpaio work, the Maricopa County work that had to do with that? Like, yes, there was. And I, I you know, I was paying attention to that. Same with Baltimore, same with New Orleans, same with Chicago, definitely Montana, all those things. Like this was something that I was thinking about a lot at the Justice Department. And so I think looking at, you know, sex discrimination, sex harassment in the workplace, it's sort of just another, it's sort of just another like facet of the prism, right? Like these are the same kinds of folks who are getting abused. It's also about, you know, sexism, power imbalance. It's just sort of another angle of the same kinds of issues. So it didn't seem to me to be so, so different. And it's been a lot of fun. I think it's all about sort of changing things across the board, right? Like you just, you're, you're chipping away at systems or, or fixing things one block at a time. What I, I, I mix so many metaphors and, and <laughs> but it's like, oh. it's another yeah. long and meandering questions and mixed metaphors and malapropisms are my thing. <laughs> that should be the theme of our podcast. <laughs> my God, Max not being able to say anything in a simple and concise fashion. But no, I mean, you've done some really impressive work, Jennifer, like at, at every one of these stops. Maybe just one, go ahead. Thanks. Yeah, I think related to that, I mean, everything you've done has been really heavy, right? It's like when you're working on these cases, the discovery you're seeing, the stories you're having, the survivors you're talking to, that all has to be difficult on you too. So tell us a little bit, like, how, sh how do you take care of your mental health? How should, you know, other thoughts or advice you have for other attorneys who do this type of work or any type of work and what they can mm -hmm. be doing for their own, you know, self-being, self-care? Yeah, that's a great question. It is a really important question that, that folks should think about. Oh, goodness. And and so often people don't, right? Because this work is, is really heavy. And that was definitely true when I was doing direct legal services. I think that's when I started thinking about self-care and, and what to do. And one of the things that I do, it sounds sort of hokey, but it is really true is I have a very regular yoga practice. And that's something that I started when I was, when I was doing direct legal services, like that is when I got hooked, you know, and sometimes I will tell people it sounds kind of out there, but it, it is true. Like I, 
you know, I, I started going to this to this yoga class sort of randomly, like at this gym that I, I was a member of at the time. But there was one teacher there who was like a serious teacher, right? And like all these people would go to the class who seemed like to really know what they were doing and know all the words and the chants and the things that I didn't know about. But there was something about this class that kept going. And and when I leave, I would feel so much like like almost physically lighter. And, and it made me realize that, this sounds very like woo woo out there, but that I think I was like, like almost physically carrying a lot of weight from the stories that, that the people I was meeting in that job were sharing with me because I was like every day, like in court and, and, and meeting with people and, and all of the, the folks I was working with were coming because they, they had, you know, domestic violence, sexual violence, and all kinds of other really difficult things happening in their lives also. And, and they would share with me. And I'm a, I'm a native Spanish speaker. A lot of the folks that I was working with were Spanish speakers. And so I say that because sometimes it would bring even a deeper level of intimacy. Sometimes that, that happens if, if you can relate to that. Like if you have people that are not used to getting to talk about very intimate things in their native language and then they can like it it brings you a bit closer and people will share even more right and i i was carrying it and i would go to yoga and then realize that later i felt a bit better you know and and so i got hooked and and that is something that i have you know kind of kept up very regularly ever since like people will ask me like oh like how long have you been practicing yoga and I'm like oh it's about exactly the same as how long I've been a lawyer like those things have ended up being just the same because yeah but it's really important I would say another thing is you know I I am not shy or embarrassed about really embarrassing very light like pop culture like you know like pop music blared at the top volume when driving around to like tough site visits was a thing always at the justice department or watching movies that are like not the very serious movies because you know if like much of what you're thinking about during your workday is quite heavy it helps to balance it out with very very light so the key is yoga and pop music Yoga and pop music. Well, it makes me feel better for watching adult cartoons so often, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer, you've had such an impressive career and you've been so generous with your time this evening with Ahmet and I. Is there anything else you'd like to plug? Hmm. I really would love folks to consider joining the Legal Network for Gender Equity. We are always looking to bring in terrific new lawyers onto our team to help us fight sex discrimination and sex harassment in the workplace. It is an easy process to sign up. I'm very happy to talk to you all about it if you have questions about the process or any of it. And just in case our, our listeners missed it the first time, let's shout out again that person who you met at Mayor Brown, who inspired you to take an 80% pay cut and got you... <laughs> Thank you, Camille. Jennifer, you've been so generous to Amit and I with your time tonight and our listeners. We're going to put the Legal Network for Gender Equity, Time's Up Legal Defense Fund, and, oh, the National Women's Law Center. Got him. Got all three. We're going to put all three of those in the second episode show notes. If people want to find your last question, Jennifer, how do they do that? My colleagues at the National Women's Law Center are amazing on all the social media. You should follow them. You should look up NWLC on Twitter and Instagram, and they will charm you and inspire you and also get you full of righteous anger. And 
Just so you know, I followed you today. So you have one more follower. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> okay. I, I, I follow it on LinkedIn, but that's not nearly as cool. That's why my siblings never hear our episodes. They say, well, when you post it, we listen. I say, I post on LinkedIn all the time. They're like, all right, grandpa. Anyway, <laughs> Jennifer, thank you. Thank you. Thank you a thousand times. This was such an inspiring episode. Your story is incredible. Our profession needs more people like you who follow their heart and do really incredible work to boot with that. So thank you for all you've done on behalf of gender equity and all the different investigations you did at the DOJ. We are so grateful for your time and hearing your story tonight. Thank you a thousand times. Thank you. That's so kind. It has been so fun being with you too. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks to all of our listeners. Please subscribe and share. Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment law. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host's opinions. We are not your attorney. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.